0: I will only tell you this, right, as far as it goes, that my (laughs) passion of fishing cost me a lot, you know, emotionally and financially, because, uh, you know what I'm saying, you know, uh, like, well, yeah, it's like you know when you get back home late at night, and the wife's in the door, so What time the call is? Dinner been ready for three hours. So yes, dear, but the fish was rising. You know yep. they don't understand. You're not going to leave the river no. when the fish are rising. You know <laughs> what I'm saying?
1: That was Davy Watton talking about what he would tell his 25 year old self if he could go back in time and give some words of advice to young Davy. This is episode number 35 of the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I interview Davey Watton, one of the great wet fly fishermen and the person who breaks down the steps to catching big trout on one of the oldest fly fishing methods in the book. We talk about the six flies he has used that have caught him fish all around the world. Cover the Davy knot, why the angle of the hang is critical, and why wet fly fishing is not all about the wet fly swing. Don't miss this as Davy brings us back to the UK and a dubbing company he founded and eventually sold to Wopsy, and that line of dubbing is still available today. Before I get into the episode today, I wanted to quickly thank our sponsor for the show. Ascent Fly Fishing has customized fly pattern boxes they put together for your unique stream. These aren't just flies in a box, but they analyze the bug community in each stream, do a summary, and provide you with the exact patterns that are in the stream when you want to fish it. These guys are biologists who know their bugs and fish. They have boxes for all different levels of fishermen, so check them out today. Go to AscentFlyFishing.com and grab your custom fly pattern selection today. That's A S C E N T flyfishing.com. You can find them in a link uh, to Ascent Fly Fishing at slash thirty five. So, without further ado, here's Davy Watton from Davy Watton How's it going, Davy?
0: I'm pretty good right now.
1: Yeah, all right. Yeah. Uh, I've, uh, I, I Connected with uh, a few people, I mean, I, you know, I heard your name around and I've been kind of doing a lot of, uh, you know, research and kind of reading up and seeing, watching some of your videos and stuff. And I've, you know, pretty, I've uh, been pretty impressed with the, the sort of, you know, the information you have out there. And today I was hoping to jump into a lot of information kind of on wet fly fishing and maybe your background, um, you know, as related to that, but maybe you can start us off first to talk about how you first got into fly fishing and then, you know, how you, got into guiding, because I know you're still guiding, and it's, it sounds like you've been guiding for a number of years. Maybe you can tell us how, how that all came to be.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, real briefly, um, fish and water have always been something I was attracted to since I was a little kid, you know. And um, one of my uh, family members that actually owned a farm, that a trout stream ran through it. And that was really my first introduction to, to fly fishing, so far as there used to be a person, and his name I forget right now, that would come there and fly fish, This back in the 1950s.
2: Mm.
0: And that just kind of fascinated me, you know, because I'd fished and caught fish by other means at the time. And that was the first thing that intrigued me, just the physical act of watching that fly line going through the air
2: mm-hmm. and that
0: guy fishing the way that he did. And so to answer your question, that was the first thing that instilled in me the interest to, to, to fly fish. Now, uh, I guess to a large extent, a lot of that's history. But nevertheless, he was the person that first gave me a a, a rod to use, which was actually an old bamboo hardy rod, would you believe, mm. at the time. And uh, that gave me the opportunity to get to learn and develop some skills. But, you know, unlike today where you've got fly shops all over the country and this, that, and that, You know, where I was living in the U.K. at the time, there was no such thing. There'd be fishing tackle stores, and they may sell a few flies, but primarily most of their market was related to other means of of angling, essentially what they'd call in U.K. course fishing, which is, you know, non salmonid
2: species. Mm
0: -hmm. And if you lived near the coast, it would be saltwater fishing, you know, for Atlantic cod and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, moving on some, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in school, One of the uh, games masters was a Scottish person, and um, he knew I had a serious interest in fishing, and and he did too. Not so much fly fishing, but he he would take me at times to places, lakes, you know, we'd fish for freshwater species of fish. But he also gave me some equipment, including fly time products, that his father used to own. And that's what got me interested in tying flies, which was probably around the age of around 12 years old.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and within that collection, there was a book by W.C. Stewart, which, of course, is a renowned Scottish uh, fly fisherman of that era. And that got me going on it. Well,
1: mm-hmm. I always
0: had a material interest in wildlife, you know, animals, birds, whatever. And, of course, as we all know, fly tying has got a lot of relationship to wildlife because we use the byproducts of them. Right. So that was what got me going so far as um, the interest in tying flies. And in fact, by about 1966, 67, somewhere in that era, I was that good at doing it that I was able to sell flies to a local fishing tackle shop. (laughs) And that moved on from that. I um, started my own mail order business, would you believe, selling flies. And that moved on later to me uh, selling flight time material. That moved on later to me developing different products for flight fishing. Probably the best known was the SLF range of dubbing material, uh, which was sold in the world market. Hmm. And I started developing those products in about the mid-80s. And the reason I did was because the standard dubbing material generally used for flies in Scotland, England, Ireland, and Wales were seal fur.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: there's no argument about it, that it has intrinsic values that no other natural fur has got, uh, primarily because it's translucency, more than anything else. Mm. It's not the easiest material in the world to work with, uh, that I will tell you. However, they've become a ban on it, and largely related to the fact that the public didn't huh, like the manner in which baby seals were cold, shall we say. Right. And so... At the time, the importation of sulphur was banned into the UK, and there was really no alternative. And my mind got to thinking about that, you know. And kind cut a of long story short, I got to know a guy who was a chemist that worked at a company, ICI, which Irish Imperial Chemical Industries in the UK, which similarly made products like DuPont, and essentially extruded filaments, or synthetic filaments, sh- shall we say, which could be nylon, polypropylene, instead and that gave me, if you like, the foresight to be able to work with um, different synthetic materials and make combinations of blends, which included, in some cases, both natural material and synthetic material, to produce those ranges of dubbins which, which exceeded over 300 at the time. And, of course, I made a lot of signature series uh, dubbins as well, you know, the Paul Jorgensen series, the uh, David Whitlock series, and a good few more. Mm-hmm. But eventually... Um, Oh, I think about like 30 years after and just also with the, the material side of the, the business as well as, you know, Rod's reels, Lines and anything else that went with it, I kind of decided, eh, you know, <clears throat> to be honest about it, I'm getting kind of burned out with that. I and mean, there was only two companies in the world that had really the resources to, um, if you like, take over the SLS plumbing business because there, there's a lot more to that than people realize. You know, it's just not a question of, you know, mix the materials into a coffee grind, you're dealing with volume, you know, kilos at mm-hmm. a time, and all of the the uh, processes required. And as far as natural materials is concerned, you know, for example, you know, you buy a hundred thousand hairs masks in where well, you got to get hair off them, if you understand <laughs> what I'm saying, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. <coughs> Excuse me. So, anyway, uh, of the two companies in, in the country that had the uh, one, and also the ability to continue manufacturing the, the products. Wopsy was the one that eventually I sold that business to. Hmm. And that was probably uh, I, 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 15 years ago, I guess, or maybe a little more than that. And they still produce them here in Mount Home, Arkansas. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that side to do it as well. As far as teaching and guiding, I started doing that. Well, what I did, I became the first NACI which is National Anglers Council Instructor in Game Angling, which is what they define salmon and trout fishing in the UK, Call it game angling. And mm. I, I believe it was 1974, something like that. And then there were other standards of qualifications, APJI, Association of Professional Game Angling Instructors, Trans Salmon, da, da, da Well, I did all those, too. And so I started um, guiding, for one of a better word, of course, a guide in the UK or Europe, whatever, generally generally called a it gilly. It's, right. but it's the same thing. <laughs> uh, in the 70s, on local rivers and reservoirs. The interesting thing about that, I guess, and uh, unless people have been over there, they wouldn't understand that, is that, you know, the English chalk streams are always considered to be the hallow place of trout fishing. Well, I would argue that to some extent, what we have to consider is that those persons who had the notoriety in society at the time, were wealthy individuals. And they were able to fish rivers like the Tessiech and whatever. They were also largely the people that wrote about fly fishing. And of course, a lot of history as we know it, whether it be Harvard, Skews or whatever, is related to the English talk streams. <coughs> With probably the exception of a few of the uh, publications that were written on the North Country style of fishing which is up in your, ship, your spiders and soft and stuff like that. But you know what? In truth, that represents such a small percent of what took place on trout water systems, whether they were rivers, natural streams, locks, whatever, between England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And so, in many respects, a lot of the, the history, if, you, if that's the way to explain that, which you never really got written about in that sense of the word, and when I actually started tying flies commercially, most of the flies that I had to tie were established known patterns of persons like Halford, Skews, this, that, and the other. Because in many cases, a lot of the flies which we are now more, the public are more aware of, shall we say, weren't kind of looked at like that. Interestingly enough, I will tell you that. 80% of the fly pans that I produced commercially back there in the late 60s, 70s, and up until the 80s were essentially wet flies, not dry flies. And another interesting thing about that is that the majority of fly fishermen between England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland fish natural locks or man made reservoir systems or privately owned waterways that are stocked with trout because access to rivers is not like it is here. They're right parent ownership. So you either belong to a syndicate, a member of a club or association, or whatever the case may be, that leaves sections of (coughs) water. So in many cases, it eliminates general public access. And therefore, for people to fly fish, or at least catch trout, shall we say, yeah, they would have to go to other systems other than rivers.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, and... So, wow, that, I mean, that is a, um, definitely a, a full history and that's not even, I mean, that's kind of just the start of, of your yeah. connection with, with, uh, you know, back to the UK and, in that area. But how did it, how did you bring it up from there into, or when did you make your move into the U S and, and kind of get into the area where I guess you are now? And, um, or have you been in that same area fishing those rivers since you first got over here?
0: Oh, Okay. I first came over here in the 1970s and I was always fascinated by the perception that the Western rivers out there in Montana were the, the in-all and be-all place to go fly fish for trout. Right. And I used to buy some products from some of the companies there in West Yellowstone uh, because you couldn't obtain, for example, genetic hackle in the UK. Mm. Nobody did that over there. Mm-hmm. And so I used to buy Henry Hoffman tapes, okay? Yeah. And... I would get, okay, so I would get those from some of the resources then. in West Shallowstone. Um, but any event, I came over and I wanted to go fishing over there, which was kind of an eye-opener to me, in that sense of the word, because as much as the English short streams are beautiful places to fish, they're totally different from the western river systems. Hmm. I mean, totally different. First and foremost, you have rainbow trout in those systems and some places you've got uh, cut that doesn't exist in English chalk streams. They're all browns.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Not necessarily wild fish because interestingly enough historically the English river keepers were the first guys to figure out how to essentially raise fish in hatcheries. <laughs> and so what they would do, they would catch up the brown trout during the running time of when they're running the river to spawn. They would strip them and then they would do go through the same process as largely hatcheries do today. They essentially incubate the eggs and raise the fish on to a size that his worship wanted stocked in the river, which is usually about one and a half pound or two Mm pounds, something like that. Of course, as we all know it today, uh, raising trout in hatches is a massive commercial Mm -hmm. operation. However, (laughs) I was totally fascinated by that. And it was a totally different style of fishing to what I would be used to in the UK. Essentially, there was more hatches. That's the first thing. And so dry fly fishing had more predominance there at, at that time. And nymph fishing techniques, you know, I can tell you another interesting thing about that. You know, by and large, nymph fishing as we know it today. And you know, now when I talked to fly fishermen today, I said, you know, you, you, you need to understand that what you th- know today, you know, not so many years ago didn't exist. You know, 80% of the fly pans you use today, probably 20 years ago, didn't exist <laughs> and stuff like that. And that's largely also somewhat related to the um, techniques of, the, of fly fishing. Go back 20 years, the vast majority of techniques that people tend to want to use today, like drone nymph fishing or that mm-hmm. kind of carry-on, it didn't exist here. It, it was practiced over there to some extent, but it didn't exist here. And so, your general approach to nymph fishing, as an example, on a river system in the UK, would be with an upstream presentation. I never knew what a done indicator was until I come over here to the US. Never seen such a thing in my life, right? Yeah. And I thought, huh, you know, I can understand the logic and the and the worth of doing it, but I learned skills how to catch fish nymph fishing wise without the use of an indicator. <clears throat> what largely has changed that scenario was the competitive world of fly fishing That's to which right. I was also yeah very much related to you know for 18 years I fished competitive fly fishing events and I loved the hell out of it you know because i don't know um it's not something that you do for monetary reward because there is none you do it for your own personal self satisfaction i guess but Also, the comradeship of all the other guys from the different countries and teams you fish against, you know, what we call a good crap. But I will tell you that almost certainly, and I'll argue that till the cows come home, that competitive fly fishing has been almost largely responsible for the development of more fly fishing technique and skills. No argument about it, (laughs) you know, uh, whether whether it's still water related or moving water related, Mm -hmm. it has. And I think that. Human nature, you know that necessary urge to kind of want to do better than somebody else, or develop new means, methods, and/or techniques to do better than somebody else. Obviously, it had a lot to do with why those techniques, as in many respects as we know them today, advanced as much as they did. Because historically, years ago when I started fly fishing, the standard method of fishing under still water or lake would be with traditional workloads. Mm-hmm. And, and in the boat, what we call traditional lifestyle fishing, which is where a broke broadside is drifted downwind, and a team of flies, three or four, would be cast in front of that drifting boat and retrieved back towards the boat. That's traditional lifestyle fishing. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a very skillful form of fly fishing. Unfortunately, there's not many places there in the U.S. you can practice that. Um, there's some pretty damn decent lakes out in Montana Hepburn um, Lake is a great lake for that, uh, and it's Quake Lake. And mm-hmm. I've you know, spent a lot of time out there doing it on those particular lakes. But uh, other than that, there's not too many resources for you to do that. That said, what? Uh, how can I put this into context? Okay. Traditional wet fly fishing, in my book, is the arts and skills of fishing, by and large, classic traditional wet flies that almost in most cases are wing flies. So okay. I'm not sure how familiar you are with many of those fly patterns. But if you take examples of flies like the Butcher or the Dunkel, they're traditional classic wet flies. What about the, around uh, or... the
1: the lead the lead wing coachman, is that a traditional pattern or is that more of a newer wet fly? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's a fly of of American origin, albeit okay. it is derived from the English version of the coachman. Yep. And and or the royal coachman. Um, you just raised a valid uh, point there which I'll explain is that bear this in mind that in most cases fly fishing has its roots in eastern parts of the United States and that being so the majority of species they fish for were brook trout Mm -hmm. okay because in in most cases neither brown trout or uh, rainbow trout were stocked into those rivers that largely was a Something brought about by the U.S. Fish Commission, now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, throughout the country. So the introduction of fly fishing into North America, so to speak, largely was related to what was already known over there in in Europe in the first place. And so traditional wet flies very much had a significant place, you know, in as far as fishing. And there were certain flies that have more of an American origin because... They were somewhat more related to the species they were fishing for, more like brook trout. They tend to like more gaudy, flashy flies. Mm. Now, that said, uh, I look at traditional wet flies in many, many different ways, and I kind of categorize them in three ways. You know, you have what we call imitators. So if you take a fly like a winged red hair's ear or a winged March brown, Typically, they are flies that have some relationship to the species by virtue of the manner in which they're tied. You know, I've always argued this point with people. Drought, in some respects, are kind of stupid, if you know what I mean by that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But they can become educated. And what I mean by that is they get conditioned by the fact that human beings can persistently pursue to try to catch them. They're no different from any other wild creature. If they're not subject to consistent pressure, they're not so difficult to catch if you approach them in the right way. Let's just put it like that. So, if you take flies like the March Brown and the wet Hares here, or the Blue Dun or the Iron Blue Dun, they are representatives of a species, okay? Mm -hmm. And if you use those fans, incidentally, during the hatches of those insects, you almost certainly, if you present them in the right manner, Catch fish if they're feeding on those naturals. Then we have flies that we've define as deceivers. They kinda of deceive a fish. Now, the truth of the matter is I don't care what it is you throw out a fish, you're deceiving it. Okay? You're deceiving it into it believing it's either something worthwhile or natural to eat, or it's just taking it and deciding whether it is or it ain't and spit it out if it don't like it. But you're actually deceiving fish. It doesn't matter what you fish. I don't care where you fish a hopper, and if you're deceiving the fish at the end of the day. So, that said, there are certain flies I would define as deceivers. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with those either, but you know, a classic fly like would be a Wickham's Fancy.
2: Mm.
0: It's a gold body fly with, you know, a brown hackle, palm down the body, and a gray mallard wing. Does it look like anything in nature we are looking at? No, of course it doesn't. Mm. But in some respects, there's something about the fly, the attractiveness of that fly, that mm-hmm. appeals to trout because it's one of the most effective. Mm-hmm. Another fly like that would be, for example, a Peter Roth. Uh, in my opinion, trout take that because it resembles a small pinfly because it's got a silver body,
2: mm-hmm.
0: a little red uh, dubbed thorax, black hackle, and a teal wing. You pull that fly through the water, it looks like a little pin fly. Mm-hmm. Then we have flies that I would define more so as attractors. So if you take, for example, a dunk it's a gold body fly with an iron shackle and a bronze mallard wing. Nothing in nature remotely resembles that. That said, it and a whole bunch of other flies, which I would define as attractors, will attract fish under certain prevailing conditions. Mm. And then it may work real good one day, but not the next. Mm. And one of the of fly fishing, as far as traditional wet fly fishing is concerned, is understanding the prevailing conditions at that time, which is based on a lot of different issues. It could be the time of the year, it could be the the conditions related to the water, water temperature being one, relative angle of sun and light penetration into the water. You know, are, are you fishing your flies towards the east side or the west side?
1: Things like that. This is a great uh, – the, the point you're making here is a great one. I actually had um, a, a question that came in from one of the listeners uh, when I mentioned that we were going to have you on. And and it was pretty straightforward, but he was just – one of his big questions was is when to fish wet flies. Like, you know, and I know that's probably kind of a general question, but can you – continue to speak to that a little bit, maybe that person that's new to it to help him understand, you know, when when he Uh, might use wets and the types of wet. Well, I guess you've described the different types of wets, but so it's not always dependent on the hatches, I guess. So you can fish them just as an attractor, even when there aren't necessarily that species hatching out.
0: That's correct. Absolutely right. Um, The answer to that question, I would, I would just say this. There is no one method of fly fishing doesn't matter whether it's dry fly nymph stream or, or whatever is on any one day is guaranteed to be the, the best way to catch fish i mean i know that from years and years of experience there are some days i don't care what you do the fish just don't cooperate mm-hmm. and almost certainly that has to do with factors that whatever it be you know water temperature oxygen related issues in the water they don't want to eat they want to feed and you may have issues related to the water itself you know it is it moderately flow water or is it high water due to generations or runoff from this? One? You know, all those parameters can mm-hmm. have a, a relevance so far as what are the best mes- methods of approach to fishing. So, my answer to the question would be yes, there are times when a wet fly techniques will outfish any other. <laughs> There's no argument about it. They will. Assuming at the time the fish are. In a mood to respond to that style of fishing. On the other hand, there may be times where they're slow to respond to that, and you may be better off fishing the deep water nymphs at the, at mm. the bed of the river
1: mm-hmm. because
0: the water temperature is somewhat cold, and they don't want to move through the water column. Right. Now, um, so far as what flies to use, you know that is everybody asks me that question. Mm-hmm. And I can only give them these answers that under certain prevailing conditions, I know that certain flies, ninety yep. percent of the time, will work. They will catch you fish. Huh. However, whether they will or they won't is largely based on what you do with those flies.
1: Like and what so, sort of, like what sort of uh, action you put on the flies, or yeah, how, whether you're yeah. going upstream or sure. downstream.
0: Yes. Uh, Correct, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because certain flies lend themselves more to what we call an upstream dead drift presentation with maybe some s- small amount of animated movement, whereas other pans lend themselves more to a, a, a cross stream presentation and you draw the flies back towards you. Unfortunately, I have to say the majority of fly fishers here that perceive wet fly fishing as the way to go tend to cast across stream and dip flies back upstream, which is totally unnatural for a fly that comes whizzing upstream. And that results in a high percentage of mistakes and lost fish. Largely because, well, I can tell you a number of reasons why. And the main one is is because A, it's an unnatural way for a fish to see a fly in the first place. But secondly, the anglers tight line them. Mm. And as soon as they feel that fish, they jerk it back. And instantly, you jerk the fly straight away from the fish's mouth. Mm. And you have to learn the skills of being able to fish, even on a downstream drift and or movement, a slack line. I know you may think, well, how the hell do you do that? But you do. You do not keep a direct straight line. There's always some freedom of movement in that line that allows that fly to somewhat more animate. And when the fish takes that fly, it takes it, assuming it to be a natural food source. And it doesn't all all of a sudden throw that solid resistance on a tight line. It'll turn with the fly. All you've got to do is hold the rod. Yeah, you don't really have to set the hook. You yeah. just got to hold the rod. Um, salmon fishermen will know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. You don't jerk fly out no. of salmon's mouth.
1: Same thing with uh, steelhead is the same thing when you're swinging yeah. flies for steelhead. Yeah, you don't want to jerk. You kind of let them. You let them take it and and then you you go for it. Um, no, that's yeah. th- this is awesome. This is maybe you can give an example of maybe you can talk about what you would consider you know your home river and maybe. How you, you know, might take a beginner, you know, get him, you know, maybe the first day on the river, how you would get him into f- fish on, on the wet fly.
0: Okay. Well, okay. Well, that's something I do frequently because I have a lot of persons that want to learn the skills of wet fly fishing. Uh, the, the first question is to answer is that my local ribs is what river here in Arkansas. Okay. okay? And incidentally, you did ask me how long I've been here, and it's about uh, 20 years. Okay. And I'll briefly tell you the reason why I came to be here is because one of my closest friends in the world is Dave Whitlock. And oh, I've well. known Dave for... I, I just... Dave and I...
1: Uh, I, I was, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to make the point. I have uh, Dave I was chatting with on the phone or uh, and his wife, trying to set him up for a, uh, another interview. And I think recently he had uh, went into the hospital, but I believe he's he's getting better now. Um, and I'm hopeful that I'll have him on the show as well. But uh, no, that's amazing. Yeah. So you're, you're connected with <laughs> some of the, the biggest names in the world still.
2: That's oh yeah. A,
0: yeah. In fact, David, Dave, Dave will be here tomorrow at my house. Oh. Uh, he, he lives in Oklahoma now. And so we've, we've fished and hunted an awful lot in our lives. And we've worked at fly fishing events all over the world together. Uh, a long, nice. long time. Anyway, the, the reason why I came here is because Dave was always telling me, you've got to come and fish the white River in Arkansas. He said, it'll blow your mind. And I said, really? And he says yeah. Well, here's probably, oh, maybe 25, 30 years ago, I guess. And um, I did. And I to stayed with Dave and Emily, you know, and mm-hmm. we go fishing. And, and I was astounded about it. And the reason being is very unlike... My home waters, once again, relate to the fact they start rainbow trout in these river systems, okay? Um, thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them, they don't do that in my country. And so <clears throat> you quickly learn that, you know, the skills of fishing for wild brown trout are totally different from fishing for rainbows, if you really understand what I'm trying to tell you mm-hmm. about that. <clears throat> you know, unfortunately, hatchery hatchery rainbow trout are about stupid, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, they will wise up eventually, but basically, they're stupid. They don't know any different. I know they become more <laughs> difficult to catch. In fact, I'll argue that uh, a big rainbow trout can be a damn sight harder to catch than a big brown trout, and that's my personal experience of fishing mm-hmm. two years' form. But I know that. But any anyway, event, that's how I came to be here in Arkansas. Okay. And uh, and so the next thing, people want to learn to fish white flies. I don't know whether you've ever asked this question of anybody else, but I will tell you this: the downfall for the majority of fly fishermen in this country is they lack good basic casting skill. Mm. Okay, they can get away with mediocre casting lengths, whatever they're fishing a the dry or nymph. But you know, wet fly fishing demands a lot of technical skill in casting because you're fishing generally long leaders, you're fishing multiple flies two, three, or four, I know in some states you're allowed to do that. I know, in, for example, in Montana, you're legally only allowed two flies. You can still actually fish a three-fly rig, but uh, and I'll explain that more if you want me to do that, because the essence of how those flies are balanced between that leader system, we call that a cast, incidentally. Mm-hmm. The cast is the, is the makeup of the flies. It's not related to the physical act. Balances those flies out and enables those flies to fish in different ways hmm. at the same
1: time.
0: Yeah, that's like, that, right that's the thing.
1: interesting point there is on – so when you have that cast of flies, maybe I, mean, I have a bunch of questions there. One of them is, you know, how do you keep from getting tangled? That That's definitely one thing. Um, and maybe there's specific, you know, the knots used and things like that. And, and I know casting is obviously a big part of it. Um but, yeah, I mean, how, maybe you can explain how you fish those differently. If you've got four different flies on your leader, how, how would you – maybe you can describe that process of, you know, whether you're casting upstream or downstream, you know, or however you typ- oh, yeah. typically will do it. And then how do you how do you make them act differently, each fly?
0: Okay. May I just answer this question first? You had a query regarding how do you stop the flies tangling. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you. There's two simple answers to that question. The one is that how you build the leader system in the first place and you balance supplies. And the second one, which is more important than anything else, is your casting technique, assuming you are using the right rod. And and a rod that's typically good for wet fly fishing does not need to be a fast-action rod. I like rods that are approximately 10 11 foot in length, which are what we call mid-flex action rods. In other words, they, they flex real good in the mid section. Mm-hmm. They've got a softer tip section to them. And that enables you to slow, excuse me, enables you to throw very slow deliberate casting strokes, which also tends to keep the, the loop of the fly line, the upper and the lower leg, separated. And that lessens the chances of you tangling your flies. If you're one of those that's like all in, you know, physical energy mm-hmm. stuff, I'm going to you are going to get tangled. <laughs> okay. And you're going to spend more time untangling stuff and rebuilding it than you are fishing.
2: Yep.
0: That's all I can really say that casting technique and skill has a lot to do with your ability to be able to fish those flies in the right and proper way in the first place. Okay, so you asked me about how I choose to fish certain flies in certain ways. Uh, okay, there are essentially three fly lines that I would use for traditional wet fly fishing. One is a double taper fly line, okay? Mm-hmm. The second one would be an intermediate. What I mean by that is a line that sinks now approximately one or two inches per second. It's a it's, it's a continuous fly line. It, it's not a sink tip. Mm-hmm. And the other one I might use in extreme excuse me, circumstances is a short section sink tip. Maybe a four to six foot with a four to six inch IPS, something like that. Mm-hmm. There was actually a new line that um, Rio produced called a hover line, which has great uses at times. It's neither a dry line nor an intermediate. Hmm. It will fish below the surface film. It was, it was more a line developed for still water angling where there's more... In, in fact, I'll tell you, there's more skill and technique in still water fishing than there is in, in yeah. moving water systems, but that's another matter. But that line works really, really well on moving water systems because you eliminate surface line movement. That's, that's a big part of it. And you can also keep the flies under controlled method or controlled retrieve at a certain level in the water. Mm-hmm. Which is very important at times. So how do I build system? If I'm fishing more on an upstream mode, The reason I'm doing that is because by and large, the fish are at that time feeding on emerging insects and or duns or whatever. They're more inclined to take stuff off the surface in a natural manner, natural food sources. And so I'm going to present flies in that manner. So I'm not going to use generally large flies. They're generally going to be not much bigger than size 14s, large cases sometimes 16s and 18s. They may be combinations of wing wet flies but I may also use a lot of spiders and soft tackles because I want those flies to be presented in a very delicate manner like they're a natural food source just naturally moving in the surface film. And if you use the right system and present it in the right way, you'll get as close as you possibly can through representing how a natural food source is moved in the meniscus, right? The surface, mm-hmm. okay? And so that would be a dead drift mode.
2: Yeah.
0: To deal with that, well, let me just put that into perspective. If I told you to uh, set up a system with three dry flies spaced approximately 25 to 30 inches apart and cast those upstream, okay?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's, you're, you're kind of doing a similar thing to that when you're fishing wet flies, soft tackles mm-hmm. or spiders. Yep. The, the difference That's is right. you can't visually see them, okay? Because they're not floating on surface. So you have to develop skills of focus. And that's also related to the how you have the ability to control your fly line and see at the the slightest amount of movement the indication is fishes took the fly. It may just momentarily stop. Or it'll do something. You may see a little boil
1: in the surface mm. film. Or so, you're l- or something. so you're looking at your fly, you're trying to you can see your wet flies when they're coming down, or are you looking at something else? To d- no, detect
0: the I can't, no, no, correct, rarely can you see the flies, uh, there are certain circumstances you can if you're in an elevated position looking down, but generally when you're weight water fishing, you can, and so what you're doing is you're looking for anything that gives you a sign of detection, Fishes take those flies, and, and I will tell you from experience, it takes a lot of control and focus to be able to do that, and, and more to the point, line control. Big time, line mm-hmm. control. You you must have no adverse drag. In other words, what I mean by that is that the influence of current moving downstream must not cause those flies to go downstream faster than the natural movement of the water. Yeah. Okay? All right. And I generally use very long leader systems, uh, nearer much less than around 14 foot, mm-hmm. maybe 16, 18 feet So Because as you probably know, you know, the finer diameter of line, nylon, or Fluorocarbon, whatever you choose to use, is less influenced by drag on the surface by mm-hmm. water. It's the fly line that's going to kill you more than anything yeah. else. So,
1: how much of your fly line typically will you have on the water when you're if you're casting upstream, and it's coming back down? No, towards next, you?
0: To oh. uh, no next to nothing. not next to nothing. Just what we call an angler,
1: gotcha. an angler hang. So almost like, like a, that is the. Uh, almost like a European type nymph fishing where they've got really long leaders and I guess, but they go with some really thin diameter fly lines as well. You don't really do that though.
0: Yeah, I do. Oh, you do. Um, Okay. I I do. Yeah. Even though I may fish a four weight rod, if I can get away with fishing a two weight line on it, I will. Okay. Uh, Because my, my, my uh, objective is actually to present my flies. I mean, all the fly line is doing is just, essentially helping you get them out there, if that's the way to explain it, would you? So the lighter line you use, yes, the better off you are, because there's the less influence of drag. Essentially, what you're doing is you have an angle of hang off the end of the rod tip to the surface of the water with a fly line.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
0: that's what I call short line fishing. What I mean by that is you're not forced to cast fly line to actually reek fish. There are times when you will have to do that, obviously, because you can't either wade there, or if you do, you'd spook the fish anyway, so... You've got to cast along the line. And I think on that DVD, Wet Fly Mm Ways, you will see some of the demonstrations that I show how you do that. The most important thing is you don't create adverse drag to the flies. You you try to make sure those flies drift down in a manner which is close as you can get to how a fish would see a natural food source. Gotcha. And the next would be, more up on across, cross presentation. Oh, incidentally, there's one thing I, I should have added here. Mm-hmm. Is that when you fish in that manner, you must never present those flies in a direct straight line. What yeah. I mean by that you, is you you don't directly cast them upstream because, you know, the flies are one behind the other and they're all coming down in the same line. Mm-hmm. You, you must angle the cast so the flies, depending obviously which side of the stream you're fishing, are coming down so each fly is separated from another. So... If you're actually say building a system with the flies thirty inches apart, well, from the tail fly to the top dropper fly, if you're using three flies, there's a sixty-inch difference between Mm -hmm. them. You, you follow what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, makes sense.
1: So basically yeah. you're, when you're, you're not necessarily casting straight out, you're still casting up, but you're at an angle. So now you've got one fly that's at this um, hitting a fish that might be here, and then there might be another fish 16 inches out. And so you might be covering multiple fish as well as getting a different uh, movement on the flies. And, and you're getting the different movement because of the different currents and, and where they're sitting, or are you doing anything different? Before Davey finishes up that thought, let's take a break and have a word from our sponsor. Do you struggle at times to know what to put on the end of your fly line? Maybe you're heading to a new stream for the first time and need a good selection of flies. The guys at AscentFlyFishing.com have you covered with their biologically sampled custom fly box patterns for your next fishing trip. Head over to AscentFlyFishing.com to grab your custom fly patterns. That's A-S-C-E-N-T FlyFishing.com. Or head over to wetflyswing.com dot com slash thirty five. Now back to Davy. Yes,
0: yes, yes, that, yes. That's exactly right. Yes, yeah. you you've got the surface movement, which, as we know, varies within maybe a foot or so, and so all of that is an influence on how those fish, excuse me, how those flies are are, are naturally moved in the surface film. The trick of it is, and it's it's hard to explain to people; it's easy to show them that you mustn't tight line it, but you have to have control of it. In other words, you have to have contact with the flies. What I mean by that is that when I say contact, if you create too much contact, contact you move them. In other words, you tight line to them. Mm-hmm. So there's a fine line between not having a tight line but not having control. In other words, you just can't have everything slack out there because oftentimes the fish will take that fly. You never see it done it because it gives you no visual detection. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so it pays. And I'll only go back to saying to you, like, well, you fish two or three dry flies, and you're essentially doing the same thing. The only difference is you can see the fish come up and take the dry fly, so you have a surface disturbance. In the case of fishing the traditional wet flies like that, soft apples or spiders, it doesn't really matter, Uh, you don't have that. Total visual disturbance, like you would when you see a head come up and take the dry, but you will almost certainly get some surface disturbance when the fish takes that flight in the surface film.
1: Gotcha. And then when we come across – go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like – I mean, occasionally they might take uh, dry flies in that manner too, you know, where they're just kind of almost sipping – sipping off the surface. But I guess that that's typically a, that's the, that's the wet fly. That's the emerging bug where they're, you're seeing that sip. Is that typically what you find? Yeah. yeah.
2: But
0: yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So if you're using like what we call North country spiders, which is very fast flies with thread bodies and just small amount of hackle, you know, those flies submit, or generally should not be tied on heavyweight hooks. And because the hook weight will actually sink the fly if you're not careful. Uh, they, they should they should sit just below the surface film for the period of time that you drift them. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about an inch or two inches at the most. And then almost certainly when a fish comes up and takes them, you should see some disturbance that they've done that. Gotcha. And then if you then start working it more across and up, in other words, you're actually... Casting more across to the stream, but not directly across, say from your, your position to the bank. You're kind of in the halfway margin of it. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a period of time where you're going to get dead drift modes, which is what I would call those. And then you get to a point where if you don't recover the flies, well, what happens? We, we get dragged because the influence of water downstream mm. will start pulling onto the fly line and pull the flies around in a semicircle yeah. that you don't want.
1: So are you fishing this? Out? Are you fishing this out as if you do cast kind of upstream and across? Do you, as it comes, as it comes down towards you and then swings by you? Do you fish it down on the down on the uh, the swing down below you as well? Let it swing down. No, 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 okay. no. I don't. What? No, I have three modes of presentation. One is
0: more the more directly upstream dead drip mode. The second one is more across. Excuse me, uh, upstream and across. Two across. And the third one is more across to down. So there's three different modes of presentation. And
1: when and when might okay. you choose to fish? Uh, a couple questions here. The first one is, what type of water are you fishing when you when you're casting upstream? You know, and then also, you know, when do you choose to go upstream, whether you're, or or across or down?
0: Uh, based. Okay. Two things I've taken into consideration. One is: is there any natural surface activity? that the fish, at that time, i interested to be active with. Maybe yes, maybe not. It yep. really doesn't make much difference in that sense of the word because I, I can tell you from years and years of experience and hundreds of thousands of fish that if they see those flies the right way, they'll come up and take them. And so, but that said, if we're fishing really skinny water, you know, waters maybe only 6 inches a foot, 18 inches, that is absolutely the best mode of presentation because generally when you're fishing water is that shallow, it's moving pretty fast, mm-hmm. okay? And therefore, when you fish them in what we call the difficult North Country style upstream, as that food source is coming towards the fish, they grab it pretty quick. They have no choice. And yeah. that's no different when you're fishing artificial flies; They grab it. Uh, a totally interesting thing about that. One time, I was with a guide friend who was a very knowledgeable fisherman, that I will tell you. But he had very little experience on traditional-style wet fly fishing, and he wanted to learn some of that from me. And no problem. You know, a guy that's generally a good angler and got experience, they they, they can kind of get onto that pretty quick. Well, we get out in his drift boat, and we start going downstream, and we come to this real skinny, shallowy water shoal, and he's just like plowing for us. I said, why, you, why you just want to go through this? And there ain't no fishing there, he said. <laughs> I said, well, I don't agree with you about that. I said, you're telling me that because your experience based on the fact that nobody fishes there, and in first place, so nobody catches nothing out of it. Oh, well, they hang up on their nymph rigs all the time. I said, yeah, I understand that too. Pulled a boat to the shore. He pulled a boat to the bank, and I said, watch this. I started from the tail end of that shallow and started working up.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: One after the other, fish come out of there. <laughs> it blew his mind. He couldn't believe that there were so many fish in that shallow water.
1: Nice. And oh, and were think, these decent, you not... Do you find decent-sized fish in the shallow water as well, or a good a diverse mix of sizes? Oh, like, absolutely, yeah. I've caught some really big brown trout on water like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and is this unique to, you know, wet flies? I mean, can you, you fish for you talking rainbows and brooks? I mean, are there any trout species that maybe you wouldn't fish the, the wet fly, these techniques you're talking about?
0: Sorry, can you repeat that question
1: to me? Just as far as uh, the different trout species, are there are there any? Do you pretty much use the wet fly these techniques on browns, rainbows, brooks, on on all the trout?
0: Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've caught in my lifetime and a good number of brown trout between eight and fifteen pound on wet fly. Really, oh
2: wow! As, as well, well as. Oh,
1: no. no, this is this is cool. I mean the. the, the I can tell you there's a ton of great information here and I there's no way we're going to be able to get to everything I can tell you tonight just because we'll run out of time but I wanted to before we um before I forget I want to make sure that people can follow up on it as far as videos and things like that cuz I know you have some you mentioned one the wet fly ways where would be the best place sure. to direct somebody if they wanted to you know kind of just get a video that shows you exactly everything you're talking about here Yeah
0: well they can come directly to To me via my uh, website address.
1: Okay. So uh, they can actually order it off
0: my website.
1: Oh, great. So the the davywattonflyfishing.com, they can get everything there then. Yes, sir.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Perfect. I was going to, there's, I still have uh, some more questions relating to the techniques and flies and fly tying and things like that. But I had a couple questions I wanted to throw out to you that I've been thinking about and I think will be kind of interesting. And one of them is I was wondering if you had maybe a you know, you've been, like you mentioned, since a very early age, you've been doing this and you've seen, you know, kind of everything in the industry. What, you know, is there a story, you know, from your life or, you know, fishing that really influenced to, to put you in the place where you are now? You know, is anything, anything stick out in your life?
0: What made me uh, do what I do?
1: Yeah, just it's, to get to get to the point where not only that, but. Yeah, it could be that, or just you know the fact that you're a you know a big a big name, and you're you've you're pretty much you've been around a long time. Oh. You're still guiding. I mean, oh. is there like a turning point oh. or some period in your life where yeah. you kind of went all in, or, or had those questions, or if it, has it pretty much always been a? Sounds like you've been fly fishing your whole life. So,
0: yeah, I have. Um, well, obviously, when I was young, I never envisaged one moment that you know I'd be where I am today and got you know pretty good worldwide recognition for the mm-hmm. things I've done. And I never thought that at the time when I was doing what I was doing. Hmm. I just did what I thought was right. Um, I started writing regular articles for fly fishing publications in the mid-70s. Some of the readers or the listeners probably would have read a lot. I wrote for um, American Angler and Fly Tire and stuff like that okay. over the years as well.
2: Yep.
0: Um, I've always had the belief that, you know, if I can educate or help somebody else get better at doing what they love doing, I- I'm happy about that. Obviously, from my point of view... I've made a living from it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you don't make a fortune out of it. and mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I wasn't a golf professional. You know, it's like my friend Dave Willock, he'd say to me, how come, we you know, we've done all these things in the fly fishing business and we're still like, we're, mm-hmm. we're still working. I <laughs> said, well, I said, I don't know. There are two two ways to answer that. I said, let me ask you this, Dave. I said, just for example, let me give you, you know, two million bucks tomorrow. Would you quit doing what you're doing? I said, before you tell me, I know you'd tell me, no, you wouldn't.
2: Because yep.
0: you love doing what you're
2: doing.
0: Yep. And, I, and I would tell you the same thing, you know. I do it because I love doing it. Yeah. Um, there's an inner, I don't know, an inner self-satisfaction from it, I guess. You know, if you innovate a new fly pattern, it's not just a question of wrapping up some new materials in a vice and, on a hook, see me, and say, oh, yeah, I developed a new fly, you know. Yeah. I don't think that way, and I know Dave don't think that way either. Uh, There's a logical process as to why you do what you do. And it's, it's purely based on how your level of fundamental understanding is on the behavior of the fish and what they're likely to do or respond to given the manner in which you present those flies. So, you know, a lot of stuff I see that people post or whatever flies. "Yeah, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would I use them? No. I mean, any fly. I don't know how diabolical it is, at some time or other, will catch fish. The regularity that it does is another matter. Right. And I think that skilled fly fishermen, at least my opinion about some of the best fly fishermen I've ever known and fished with, they have a very different perception about what they will use to catch fish. Because from years of experience, they know what they need to do to catch those fish. It's not a chuck and chance thing. And if you speak to most of those very very experienced fly fishermen, I guarantee you, there's probably no more than maybe ten or fifteen flies they consistently use. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Uh, that that is a uh, that's a great point. That's actually a question I was going to run by you as far as you know. You mentioned a few different wet flies. Are there? you know, a couple of flies that you pretty much are your, your go-tos or, I mean, I know it depends on the situation, but Um, what would you say? Or like if somebody, again, you had that person that's going out for their first time and they, they just had to fish a couple of flies. What, what would you tell them to to throw on there?
0: Oh yeah. I would, um, let me just say this is based on my experience of fishing all the way around the world. I've fished in a lot, a lot of countries in my life. And many, many different kind of waterways, you know, I've fished in Turkey and mountains there and stuff like hmm. that, you know, and Trout are trout. Uh, you know, obviously the indigenous species of Europe is the brown trout, albeit there's rainbow stuck in certain places, but um, the answer to the question is yes, I could give any person a list of about ten flies and I will go into you that any water in the world that where trout live, one or more of those flies will catch you fish. Mm-hmm. I, I know they will. Hmm. And, and if you wanted to narrow that down some, um, well, I could give that person a list of 10 flies,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: if you take classic flies, for example, like a wing wet hair's ear example, mm-hmm. or a March Brown, or a Wickham Fancy or a silverin silverin Victor, or a fly, what we call a Cockle Bundy, which is kind of like a beetle pattern. That's to explain it. Then you take a couple of soft tackles like a partridge and orange, or partridge and hares here, I I guarantee you that those flies work in any water in the world where trout are. Okay. Now, you also have to consider this factor, you know, and I always tell people this when I teach fly fishing, the wondrous thing about fly fishing is that if we develop the skills as a dry fly fisher, a nymph fisher, a streamer fisher, a wet fly fisher, soft tackles, we have the ability to choose at any one point of time what we want to do because we've, de- we've got those developed skills. <clears throat> it's not so much that we want to go out there and catch a ton of fish. We all like to do that, and we've done it. But if, for example, you approach the stream today and say, I just want to catch my fish today fishing soft tackles, okay? Mm-hmm. You've, you, it's your prerogative to do it. It's your choice to do that. And now let me give a funny example of something like that. Mm-hmm. So we have two guys fishing. Uh, Bill Bloggs has just started fly fishing. He ain't got much idea about what he's doing. So he's fishing a big black woolly bugger, and he's turfing that thing out, and he's catching fish one after the other, because at that particular time, it's just working. And then further downstream, we have a very highly skilled fly fisherman, years of experience, caught thousands of fish, but he's choosing to want to fish dry fly. And he's fishing whatever, little size 16 humpy or Adams. And he's only catching maybe one fish to the other one's 10. You know, who is the better angler? You follow what mm-hmm. my point is? The guy that's only catching one fish is by far the more skilled angler, but he's using his preference of choice of how right. he wants to catch his fish. Yep. Even though he knows down well, well, yeah, I could put a black woolly bugger on and do that, but am I learning right. anything? No. And I, that's <laughs> another thing I try to instill with people. You know, if you cannot get out of your comfort zone, you're not going to develop any more skill. In other words, and I know people that are like that here on my river, they don't fish nothing but a, a woolly bugger. Right. Why? Because They're, they're comfort, comfortable <laughs> with that because their experience in the past has enabled them to catch fish doing that. Are they other developed skills? No, they haven't. Would they try to do that? Maybe, maybe not. It's their comfort zone. Yeah. So they're very limited in what they can do. And by definition of that factor, when situations change, they're screwed. They can't catch fish because they don't want to know. No. Oh, they want to catch, excuse me, take a, an olive willow bearer. <laughs> and so what I was just trying to make uh, a point of the fact was that once you become an accomplished skilled fly fisherman, you have many options of choices about how you want to catch fish on any given day. And I think that, you know, where wet fly fishing is concerned or the related issues of those styles of fishing, it is by far a technique that very few anglers here develop skills for. And I'm not quite sure the reasons why. Maybe they want to put the time into learning. I don't know. You know, I've asked people that question. Well, if no one can teach us how to do it. Well, yeah, that might be right. Oh, we read this book. We read that book. Well, mm-hmm. fine. You know, you can learn so much that way, but you really have to have somebody that can see what you're doing and tell you how to correct yeah. boats
1: it, that you've got. It's 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 true, and I've you know, the name of my wet uh, my website is Wet Fly Swing. You know, and that's obviously a, you know not talking about traditional wet fly fishing, but. You know, kind of goes back to steelhead fishing as well as trout because uh, my dad taught me. Oh, that's right. Yeah. My dad taught me about wet fly. My, my idea of wet wet fly fishing was we used to fish, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, uh, or fish the tied down caddis much, but we fish a tied down caddis and, and soft tackles a lot, but we always fished them on the kind of the downstream swing, like you would steelhead. And we did, you know, we, we did really well, but it was really interesting when I first heard about, you know, talk, heard about you and the techniques to see that, you know, it's not all about the, the downstream, you know, the wet fly swing, it's, you know, you've got different things going on. Um, so, but that's my experience and I probably would have never fished wet flies if it wasn't for him. And I always thought I was a little bit right. weird, weird, because I remember when I was a kid, I was like, God, we, we catch a lot of fish on wet flies and nobody else was doing it. Right. They're all nymphs and dries yeah. And I was like, I guess I'm kind of weird, but <laughs> it worked. So, uh, no, I love, uh, the conversation here. I was going to check with you another question here uh, before we get back into that you know, uh, that initial person kind of maybe fishing for his first time. Um, you know, looking back on your, your life, you know, kind of going back to like your 25 year old self, is there anything that you would, you know, you might tell yourself, you know, that, uh, you know, maybe you do differently about where you're at or, or kind of, do, do you have any words of advice you might tell your 25 year old self? <laughs>
0: yeah. Some of I can't repeat on this show though, to be honest about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will only tell you this, right? As far as it goes, that my <laughs> passion of fishing cost me a lot, you know, emotionally and financially. Yeah. Because uh, you know what I'm saying. Yep. You know. Uh, well,
1: you got to have the passion cycle. to stick with it.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know, when you get back home late at night and the wife's in the door and say, what time do you call this? Dinner been ready for three hours. So yes, dear, but the fish was rising, you know. Yep. They don't understand. You're not going to leave the river no. when the fish are rising. You know what <laughs> I'm saying? Yep. So you, you, you kind of know before you get home, yeah, I'm in the shit over this, but it don't matter. Yep. I enjoyed myself. You know what I'm saying?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So basically the maybe that there's not much you would have done you know told yourself differently than i mean you pretty much had that bug and you had that passion there's no it, no denying it, it
0: yeah the the only thing i would tell you is that um you know i was very fortunate in many respects insofar as that when i've got to be known some shall we say over there in the uk i also got the respect from people that were established and had been well known long before me mhm and, and they got to talking to me. And I was also fortunate enough to get to know and fish for many years with a lot of the old guys, all dead and gone now, that had all those relevant skills from their forefathers from the mm. 1800s. Okay? And, who were,
1: and who were some of those? Can you name a couple of uh, mentors that you had along the way?
0: Oh, yeah, I can. But they wouldn't be known over here. Um Probably,
1: no, and that's that's okay. I, I love getting a little bit of the history, you know, kind of connecting people. No, I,
0: I can give you. So, I mean, probably one of the best of all was a, a really dear, great friend of mine by the name of Oscar Evans. Okay, and uh, he was a man from North Wales He was actually a policeman there in North Wales, and he had fished all his life on the natural lakes and rivers of Wales. And that guy knew how to damn well catch fish on those waters with what we are talking about here was traditional style of wet fly fishing. Hmm. And he had, in my perception, obviously, when I was back then, years and years ago, was he had an uncanny instinct to know exactly where to present those flies and move them in such a manner you'd induce the fish to take. While Hmm. we're on that subject, that is a big part of traditional wet fly fishing is the inducement. You fish those flies in the right way and you'll induce the fish to take them. If you do it in the wrong way, you'll spook them.
2: Mm. And
0: people say, well, how does that make a difference? I said, I'm telling you, it does. You know, the manner in which you present those flies will either encourage your fish to have interest or it won't. Well, anyway, Oscar was a, a great guy, you know. And In fact, I end up tying all the flies that he ever used for fishing because uh, he didn't tie flies real well. Hmm. But he knew what he wanted in a fly, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, but he couldn't do it himself. And so I ended up trying a lot of those old-style traditional Welsh patterns that very few people would know of in the first place because they were very isolated. You know, and that's another interesting thing about the history of wet fly fishing. If you take the entirety of the U- UK, England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, you know, geographically, it's very different. They're different kind of waterways. You know, mm-hmm. it could be free stone systems here or state rivers here. And the nature of the natural indigenous Uh, invertebrate species differed on those rivers, and the relationship of it was also related to the types of flies that were developed for those specific river systems. And more to the point, another interesting factor is, and bear this one in mind, years ago you couldn't just go to a fly shop or mail order all these different fly time materials. You had to use what resources existed within your locality. (laughs) And so, for example, if you lived in an area where there was... um, wildfowl, for example, then you would be able to get feathers from wildfowl, duck yep. feathers and this kind of stuff. If you lived in more woodland countryside areas, then you would get game bird feathers, partridge feathers, pheasant feathers, woodcock. <laughs> and also, you know, the gamekeepers back in them times, in the 1800s, and still today to some extent, they had to c- control vermin. Anything that wasn't a game bird, i.e. partridge, pheasant, uh, they had to get rid of it. His lordship didn't want to see no birds of prey out there. They would kill them. no matter what they were. Owls, birds of prey, all sorts. They would sell all those feathers, you know. Mm. And that's still largely a practice today with the legal species. Them gamekeepers, they collect up feathers and they sell them to companies like Vineyard, who is the largest supplier of fly-tire maturity in the UK, mm. and they process those feathers and then the fly-tires could buy them. So they could buy snipe skins, they could buy woodcock skins, you follow what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And so a lot of the flies had some origin related to a the nature of the species found on those specific river systems and also the ability of the fly ties in the area that can cut flies from the natural materials that they could obtain at that period of time or in the locality where they were. Because right. bear in mind, there was no such thing as being able to order the stuff through the mail. In fact, Miss the first company really to sell materials for the fly tire, their business wasn't established. Uh, excuse me, procuring materials for flies. Their business was there to procure feathers for the either the millinery trade or decoration, and so you know they get all these from birds of paradise and ibis birds and you name it. <laughs> I mean, there would be women walking around with two jungle cockpits on the <laughs> side of their hat. Yep. No, I'm serious, oh, yeah. yeah. And o- ostrich plumes and stuff like that. Yeah. And what, to some extent, changed that was the classic Atlantic salmon flies because they required the more exotic materials for those flies, not trout flies, you follow me? Mm-hmm. You know, trout flies were basically what we call in my country, like uh, gaudy or, and or dull-looking fly. So you take, for example, a March Brown. Essentially, there's only three components to that fly. That's that's hair's ear for the body, partridge hackle for the tail, excuse me, yeah, and the hackle.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: um, you, know, you could use hen-pheasant tail or hen-pheasant wing for the wing. They're the components to that fly, all of which were easily procured in areas where those birds were hunted. Um, and then Messina's started that business really being able to sell materials like that. Over here, you had hercas, and they mm-hmm. used to buy materials from those companies in the UK, oh. Vineyard at the time. I know that because I've got some of those old catalogs. Hmm. So a lot of the material that came from the UK of U- UK species came from that source. Whereas, of course, here in the United States, you had different resources. You have fur-bearing species that don't exist in the UK, and you also had the variables of deer, which is another interesting thing, anyway. Mm. Um, and so if you really and I've always interested me the history of all that, you know, yeah. how did this come about, and this, cetera, you know, and I kind of did a lot of research on that in my time over the years to try and understand that. I, I could actually, Dave Hughes always keep telling me, You've got to write a book, you've got to write a book. Oh, yeah the stuff, you know, you know,
2: it's like, huh, you that's right. We're, know. We're, that's what's
1: going to, what's going to happen to, uh, the, you know, all your knowledge, you know, down the line, you know, we're all going to be gone here eventually. What, what do you, uh, is it just gonna, that's, I guess that's what Dave's saying. It's just going to disappear unless you put it down somewhere. I guess, I mean, we've got stuff like these interviews here, but I can tell you as we're talking, I could talk to you for six hours and I can tell you I wouldn't get everything. You know, I wouldn't answer all my questions. That's for sure.
0: No, I, I, I know you wouldn't. Um, because it's really hard to condense that. You know what I'm saying? I can give Mm -hmm. you directive answers, but there's more to it than that. Um, You know, really all I can say to you, Dave, is that fly fishing is a skill. Make no mistake about it, of all the different requirements, regardless of whether you dry fly, nymph fish, streamer fish, wet fly fish. But I will tell you, and this is my opinion, even though it is my preferred method to fish, and I can do it all, don't get me wrong, that wet fly fishing technique requires more overall skill levels than all the others put together. <laughs> because you can really only present, think about it, you know, streamers. By what means can you present a streamer? Essentially, there's really only one way, isn't that? Yeah. You cast out, you strip it back, yeah. right? Now, for example, dry flies. Well, what's the manner in which you present a dry fly Well, generally upstream with a dead drift, right? Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And you fish nymphs. Well, generally, you fish nymphs in an upstream mode, dead drift or otherwise, but essentially, that's it. Hmm. Wet fly fishing, you can do all of that. Yeah. And more.
1: Yeah. So it seems like it's See pretty. What I'm saying? Yeah. So that's why it's fairly a pretty effective method. And it also seems like, you know, one of the problems with nymph f- fishing is you get snagged up a lot if you're not careful. So it seems like wet fly would be a pretty uh, good uh, technique for a beginner if you if he was if you can get him into casting decently so i'm I'm kind of bringing bringing us back to that person that's maybe on the um you know the white river or wherever fishing for the first time you know thinking the wet fly so if he has his gear and he's coming up to to the water and i had a question from ricky in the audience here and he mentioned um, what he said was i asked him um <clears throat> you know what some of his struggles were and he said uh, reading water is still challenging and he he says where do you fi- where do fish lie and why and how sh- how yeah. sh- and how should i approach a hole he said he did a float yeah. he did a float on his own one of the first times he was out there and it was just like a puzzle to him so can you speak to maybe briefly to to those questions a little bit
0: oh yeah well you know he's asking a question that's got a whole bunch of different answers to it hmm. obviously you know because how do you read water why I'm only going to say this in a short sentence. You develop the skills over time. Okay. In other words, if you go to a piece of water, okay, I don't know whether he fishes a a piece of water regularly and becomes familiar with that that particular river. If he does, then he should, over a period of time, become familiar with the likely holding zones of fish based on how the the river moves. And so he may find, well, you know, this little riffle water here, there's always fine to fish there. You know, if I go up here a little bit, I can usually find some fish there. But experienced mm-hmm. anglers, yet have a knowledge that to know that under certain movements of water or certain conditions, that they're the most likely lies mm. that you're going to find fish.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And all I will tell you is that that's based on water temperature, which is a related issue to oxygen levels.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so, you know, colder water, the fish tend to be in slower zones. And as the water warms up then they tend to move in faster moving water.
1: So, okay. So um, you're fishing, are you, things. are you fishing wet flies in pool type water as well?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But there may be times that they're reluctant to move, you know, because they're cold water. They, their metabolism changes and they don't need to chase around. Gotcha. And generally in colder water, they don't need intake of food either. You know, a fish, the metabolism of a trout is that if the water temperature is not right or it's too low, they can't digest the food, okay? Mm-hmm. And so they're reluctant to eat because they can't digest their food. And so as water temperature increases, then they generally get more active so far as feeding because they can digest their food. And of course, as we know, if water temperature gets too high, well, pretty much it does reverse. It shuts them down. Anything much above about sixty-eight degrees, and yeah. they're usually pretty sluggish. Yeah. So, to answer his question, if if it's wet fly fishing that he's, yeah. he's looking to do, tell I would tell him this: look for good movement in the water. You know, like the head of a pool where you've got you know faster water running off the riffle, and then as as you back down off of that, you'll generally find them more so that midways in that pool mm. as you get further down the pool when the pool gets deeper and slower yeah i'm not saying you won't find fish there but they, they may be a little more difficult to catch sure. and so yep. if you're if you're fishing water that's got a little more movement to it um it depends obviously on your skill as the angler but sure. you're generally going to have more success there than you will further downstream gotcha but gotcha. All, all i will say to him is that become familiar with the river systems that you fish and over time, you'll you'll learn, you know, how to read water. That's the way to mm-hmm.
1: to explain that one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a good uh, that's a good uh, answer for that for sure. Hey, uh, Davy, we're we're kind of running out of time here, but I had uh, one question, a couple here, but one I wanted to ask you that I've been thinking about from the beginning. And you were mentioned about um, you had that product that you sold to um, um, you sold you know sold your business. Hey, maybe you can explain. So, well,
0: the- yeah, Tawapsi fly company. Yeah, Tawapsi,
1: yeah. yeah, you saw it in that back in the day. What, what did, um, what did you learn from that whole process? Do you remember what that was like? And did did that teach you?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I learned an uh, unbelievable amount because it took me two years to perfect that product line, or the original one, because it wasn't just as simple as people realize. You know, I had to learn how to blend different materials together. That's the first thing. Um, in, 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 in fact, as far as the standard dubbing, the SLF standard dubbing, it wasn't one specific fiber. It was a combination of different fibers that I blended by percentages to get that
2: hmm.
0: what I considered to be as close as non-damn possible to what real high-quality silver was. Gotcha. Then I, had to figure, then I had to figure out all the dye processes to get all those different shades, which, <laughs> which were 48, <coughs> all together. And don't forget, you know, historically... A lot of material was sold and had a related name to the, the specific insect. So, like dark olive would be used for large dark olive, or medium olive for the medium olives, the flies, right? Mm-hmm. Or blue dung, or iron blue dung. You follow what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of the original dyeware, as it's known, that um, Venet actually was the company that did that, had a relationship by definition of the color to the species for the fly. That you were using to imitate those, okay, mm-hmm. and then of course, I know we don't have time to talk about it now, but I'd love to discuss that matter with you at some other time, sure what is now now perceived to be UV material all right I would. Trade it- I have a very different view about that, but that's another yeah, matter. Yeah.
1: Well, I definitely, uh, the, the way it's going here, I mean, I, I think uh, we'll definitely have you on for another uh, episode because there's a bunch of questions I think people will, will still have after this. But, um, no, I think it's really uh, interesting, that background.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I'm very much enjoy to do that. You now, I can talk more about the, the techniques of web fly fishing. Obviously, we didn't get into the issues of, you know, how you animate dropper flies and how you build your rig systems. An instant you asked the question earlier on, I never answered it, which was, yes, you must use detached droppers.
2: Mm-hmm. In other
0: words, your dropper must be detached from the main leader system by a minimum of four inches. Okay. And in some cases more. Yep. And it's a very simple thing to do. Yeah.
1: what's the knot called when you tie it straight? it's basically you're tying it perpendicular off of your main line, your main leader.
0: Yeah. Okay, yes. Years ago, um, when gut was used, uh, you had to use very specific guts to, to join gut uh, before okay. the days of nylon. Yep. And um, I will tell you, and I won't tell anybody else, I know probably 10 different ways to tie droppers, but the most efficient way to do it is with a three- or four-turn surgeon's knot. Yep. And you must always remember to use the lower tag not the upper. Mm-hmm. In other words, when you create that knot, you create two tags, okay? And the tag you use is not the one that's closest to your fly line. It is the one below it. Okay. Because it's a stronger, stronger uh, connection. If you tie the fly to the one above, and if, and it's very simple for you to prove this to yourself, if you make that knot and hold that tag and pull it down, you see how it wrenches against the top of the knot. And if you do it below. And of course, the only knot I use to tie flies on is the Davy knot,
2: hmm.
0: and that's a knot. But when I was a kid, I only way I knew how to tie a hook hook on a piece of line,
2: uh-huh.
0: and I've used that all my life. And I've <laughs> hundreds of people have written about that knot, and it's very, very simple. And if listeners want to know how to do it, just go Google that Davy okay. fly knot.
1: And is this the knot named, named after you? Yes. Oh, this is your – you're not cool. <laughs> this is awesome. I'll, uh, I'll, link, um, yeah. th- this I'll I'll provide a link in the show notes. This episode will be at wetflyswing.com slash 35, and I'll provide a link to um, that that nod of the video there and, and plenty of other links we talked about uh, today. But um, I had one other question too. We didn't even get into fly tying, which I know you have videos on fly tying as well. But oh, yeah. I, I wondered if you could leave us before we let you go just with a maybe – you know, a fly tying tip. And I know that's kind of a hard question, but do you have one just for uh, like general? Yeah, hit? it
0: is. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you have so something? Fly, like...
0: tying, <laughs> a fly tying tip.
1: Yeah. Okay. Do, do you have any, maybe you can make that specifically towards tying wet flies. Um, do, you, do you, or maybe you can direct some. Yeah. Like,
0: I, you know, I have a DVD related to that. Um, that, that teaches all the skills it's called wet fly tying. Okay. So it teaches you all the techniques of tying tails, bodies, hackles, and wings. Yep. The wet flies comprise of essentially five components. Some, some a little more, some a little less. But yeah. anyway, the one thing I would tell you: for most people, the most difficult thing in tying traditional classic wet flies is wings. No question yep. without,
1: right. about that. That's all. right. Do you have and, a good, do you have a really, good wing tip for, for somebody that's uh, struggling at that? Yeah,
0: I, yeah, absolutely. I do perfect the body before you try to put a wing on it. Because if you don't perfect the body by definition of how you produced it, more so the hackle, you do not create a set good enough for that wing to sit right.
2: Uh-huh, yeah.
0: Um, and I don't care how you prep the wing material. If you do not have the body of that fly in, in such a manner to allow that wing to set and not twist or whatever, you ain't never going to do it. So tying wings on white flies is probably for most people, the biggest issue with yep. doing that. That's they have right. problems. Um, the other tip I would give anybody, as you will, would realize I've tried hundreds of thousands of flies mm-hmm. in my life, is thread control. No argument about that hmm. whatsoever. Um, how do you understand?
1: describe or, or get good thread control? and What does that actually mean?
0: The understanding of the relative tensions on the thread during the process of, 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 of producing the fly you know, when when to add tension to the thread, when not to add tension to the thread. You know, for example, if you're setting a wing, okay? Uh, let me give you that example, is for one. You're holding the wing, well, typically, if you're a right-handed with your bobbin, you're gonna hold the wing with your left hand. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, I use, when I set wings, I don't use my thumb and my index finger, I use my thumb and my second finger. And the reason I do that is because you can hold the wing square. <laughs> if you if you if you, if oh, yeah. if you if you right now just put your thumb and your your index finger together, they don't sit square no. right your your index finger will brush off your thumb mm-hmm. if you get your second finger and put it on top of your thumb, it comes down almost square right like fair mm-hmm. pliers. okay so you always hold the wing that way, and the thing about it is that once you've taken that toner thread over with' typically a pinch and loop technique where you push it back. That first wrapper thread you make is absolutely the most important Mm
2: -hmm. because
0: if you screw that wing with that first wrapper thread, I don't care how many more you put on, it ain't going to correct the problem. And so the first wrapper thread has to be very positive and it has to be maximum tension when you crank that material down. Mm. If you don't have maximum tension or you back that tension off after you've set that wing down, you're going to cause that wing to twist or something will go wrong. You have to maintain Absolute maximum tension to that thread with the first, second and third winds. If you do that, your wing should stay there. If it's not right with the first turn, you're not going to get it right. Take it off and try again.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. (laughs) No, that's a, uh, that's a good way that is a, I'll try to, like I said, try to provide some links to, I'm not sure if you have any videos on YouTube of uh, these techniques, but I'll I'll try to dig some stuff up on this.
0: I, I, I do actually. If you go, if you if they type my name in, you'll they'll find some stuff on there that's okay. related to that. Good,
1: good, yeah. Right. And I've, and I've, the- I've watched some of your your videos, your DVDs, and they are really really great. I've definitely learned a lot myself watching them. So, yeah, Davy, uh, we got to get get out of here. But I want to uh, before we do, maybe you can let um, people know. Maybe in the next six months, if you have anything, you know what we might expect from you. Or I'm not sure if you're going to be guiding more, or if you have anything new coming up that we can keep an eye out for.
0: Yeah, I've got a few shows that I have to attend. I've got some wet fly schools uh, that are going to take place on the um, Little Missouri River, which is like the lower part of Arkansas. It's, it's a good ways near the uh, Murfreesboro area. <clears throat> I have wet fly schools going on here at this, this time also. I'm mm-hmm. doing programs at the Branson Fly Fishing Show and will be at the Federation Fly Fishing Show here in October.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, of course, over the years I've been all the way around the country doing Programs as well. Also, Um, yeah, people. I guess you know. Let me tell you, if anybody wants to email me, and I'd be most welcome to reply to whatever their questions are. It you know, it doesn't matter. You know, obviously, my I have time that I can do that, and time I can't do that, but. I don't mind to answer questions from people if they want to call me or email me or whatever. Okay. Anything we've been talking about this evening. It's great. Not a problem.
1: Great, great. I'll uh, leave a link to your email in the um, in the show notes as well. And yeah, I guess yeah. Um, maybe you can also let us know just one more time where they can find you. So so email, I'll leave a link there. But your website your website again is the best place if they want to track down the videos or information at uh, davywattonflyfishing.com. dot com.
0: That's great. Yes. Okay. Or they can call. Or they can call me. Either one. But all that information is on the website, Dave.
1: Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, definitely. Like we said, that you know, we could talk another hour, and I hope to have you back on to follow up with some of these other questions that we didn't have, and I and I think there'll probably be some questions coming, you know, that come out of this show. But yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on and say thanks for all the information out there. It's definitely uh, cool to to get a little bit of the history on wet fly fishing and. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you. So uh, thanks, Davey, for coming on here.
0: You're welcome. And I look forward to the future.
1: All right. Thanks. See ya. Take care, now. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we cover, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 35. If you get a chance, it would be great if you can send a tweet on Twitter And use a lightning bolt emoji if you can find it. That would be awesome. I would know you're you're still out here even at the end of the show. That would be cool. Uh, So that's all we have for the show today. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon. And maybe even seeing you online or on the river. Later. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.